Amen. All right. So, um, welcome back, guys. Um, it has seriously been a while. Um, I didn't miss any of you guys. Just kidding, I did. I miss you guys a lot. Um, but Happy New Year. And uh, it, again, it looks like we have some new faces. And so, um, I think a brief introduction is in order. Um, for the past several months, uh, we've been going through uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, it is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's not actually his first letter. It's most likely his second. Um, and because we've been off for so long, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that all of us need uh, a refresher and a reorientation into this important letter. Um, and I promise you that providing context is going to help all of us understand tonight's passage better. And I, I'm going to explain why in just a second. But as I was, as I was preparing for this message, I was, uh, I was reading through uh, 1 Corinthians again. And I was just amazed uh, at how messed up the Corinthian church was, like at how the, the, the problems that they uh, had faced. And if you remember, the reason why Paul was writing to the Corinthian church was because the church uh, was seriously messed up. Uh, every church and every youth group, you know, has its own problems. But the Corinthian church took it to another level. Um, uh, you know, Paul talks about members of the church suing one another. Uh, he talks about uh, a member of the church who ends up sleeping with his uh, stepmother. Uh, he talks about, I know, really ridiculous. Uh, it, it is a kind of immorality that is actually even unto- uh, untolerated by non-Christians. Um, Paul mentions how members of the church would get drunk at church uh, while taking com- communion uh, because, you know, the, they drink wine for communion. Um, I've been trying to persuade the staff to do that. I'm just, I'm just, I have, I have no, but, um, and at the end of the chapter, uh, Paul mentions that there were some who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so sexual immorality, uh, lawsuits, heresies, to name a few, abounded. But what blows me away as I was reading through uh, this letter is that the first thing that is on Paul's heart uh, as he begins his letter amidst all of these problems is he says, hey, I, I hear that there are divisions among you. I, I hear that you guys don't like each other. Uh, I, I heard that some of you are forming cliques and, and factions and sowing seeds of disunity. And that's what blows me away. The, the first thing, can, can you imagine? Okay, the, the first thing, if you had heard all those crazy things, I'd be like, dude, what, what's wrong with you, man? Um, but the first thing that he addresses with these Corinthian believers is their division. And how it is dismantling their distinct witness in the community. But in starting first with the vision, Paul was also pointing out the tight link between their relationship with others and their relationship with God. What was really in jeopardy is that through their division, the Corinthians were repudiating the very cross that had saved them. If the cross of Jesus can reconcile God's enemies, how much more... Can the cross of Jesus reconcile human enemies and rivalries and bring them into one family? And so when the church fights, when it, when it bickers, when it alienates, we are denying the uniting re- reality and purpose of the cross. So beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Paul addresses the divisions head on. And if you remember from our previous messages, he addresses these divisions uh, through three different strands. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul asks, How can you choose who to hang, out, hang around with on the basis of status if you have been saved by the world's standards, a foolish cross? And chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, Paul had asked, How can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status 
if almost none of you have status in the eyes of the world. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul asked yet again, how can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status if what saved you isn't the magnetism of the messengers, but the gravity of the cross? And then finally, in our passage tonight, Paul will be returning back to the theme of division. And that's going to be really key for us in understanding tonight's passage. Paul is returning back to the context of division. And the question that Paul will be asking of the Corinthians, and the question that he will be asking each of us, is how can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status if we have the mind of Messiah? Now, this passage uh, is admittedly a hard passage, which is why, uh, actually, in some ways, we're doing a part one and a part two of this uh, of this passage. Um, but it's important for us to remember the context to understand what's going on. And you know what's actually kind of funny? Um, you can look it up yourself, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Peter actually talks about the Apostle Paul's letters. And he says um, that they are hard to understand. And I'm pretty confident that he had in mind Tonight's passage. So if a, if a fellow apostle can't understand Paul's letters, there's hope for all of us. Okay. So um, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just, uh, I don't know, just listen to me. But verse 6, uh, this is what the apostle Paul writes in verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although... It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, or the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, <clears throat> there are many things that I love about being a youth pastor, but one of my biggest pet peeves as a youth pastor is when people don't take me seriously because I am the youth pastor. Um, for example, last summer, um, we had a pastor who had come by uh, our church office to share what he had learned as a new church planter, and it wasn't Jesse, my son, my brother-in-law, uh, and, uh, and all the pastors at Lighthouse had gone around sharing you know, uh, the, the, their names and which ministry that they pastored, and when it came to me without answering, that the pastor who had visited said, no, no, wait, let me guess, you're the youth guy, and I was like, <laughs> everyone laughed except me, I was like, why is that funny? Like, dude, what's that supposed to mean? 
Um, there's another time when I was in, in Japan uh, a year and a half ago, and this is also ministry related. And I was talking with one of the missionaries there, and, and somehow uh, we had ended up talking about the current books that we were reading. And I had mentioned that you know I was reading like you know some stupid you know philosophy book, and the missionary had stopped and, and he stopped me mid conversation and said, "Wait, but you're the youth guy, right?" Um, and I was like, "How dare you?" And I was like, "Yes." Um, <laughs> Now, as I had mentioned, um, I love being a youth pastor. Um, I, lo- I love being your pastor. Um, but my biggest pet peeve is the connotations built around uh, the role of youth pastor. Uh, it, was, it was the underlying assumption that youth pastors just play and uh, don't do anything serious, which I feel like is demeaning to not just the youth pastor, but also to like you guys. You know, like I think you guys all study calculus. That's like you guys do serious things. Um, so if you really want to know how to get on my nerves, uh, well, now you know how. Um, you're the youth pastor guy, right? <laughs> but uh, rather than just feeling sorry for myself, I had really reflected on why I felt so irked by it. Um, and it was because I had thought that being called the youth guy was a low-key roast on my maturity, not realizing that to be irked by those comments only showed my real lack of maturity. That was the, that was the irony. In, in compensating for my maturity, I was actually demonstrating my immaturity. And the reason why I bring these stories up is because this was what the Corinthians were prone to do. I want to ask you guys all a question. What what does it mean? What does it mean to be a mature Christian? Just think about it for a second. What does it mean in your mind to be a mature Christian? Is it knowing a lot of of theology? Uh, Is it going to church for as long as you can remember? Is it knowing how to silence Christianity's critics? Is it reading through the Bible in a year, which I hope that you guys are doing? Um, is it memorizing scripture or being nice to your annoying siblings? Is it knowing when to say something and when not to say something? Is it being able to lead a small group or, or teach or preach? What is our standard of maturity? Now, maturity is not less than those things, but when, when these things become the exclusive standard, they end up dividing, not Uniting God's community. You see, the Corinthians had a standard of maturity that actually proved their immaturity. Because if the Corinthians were truly wise and truly mature, they would not have used the world's standards of wisdom and maturity to split the community of God. If they were truly wise and truly mature, they would not have appealed to how much they knew or how successful they were, how charismatic they were, how gifted they were, or how beautiful they were as the basis for maturity. If the Corinthians truly knew wisdom, they would not have formed cliques, and they, would have, they, would, they wouldn't have looked down on other people. And what we're going to see is that when we appeal to those very same standards, we are in danger of proving our immaturity, and worse, destroying the very church Jesus the Messiah died for. And what the Apostle Paul is going to show us in tonight's passage is that there is a better way. We have the mind of Messiah. And he's going to show us how having the the mind of Messiah means, well, two things, but just because we're only going through one point tonight, just one thing. Uh, But the key idea is that having the mind of Messiah means that our standards of maturity must be redefined. Our standards of maturity must be redefined. And so that's our first point. <clears throat> now, um, 
Many people, uh, going back to the passage, many people have used this passage to start cults. Okay, that's just how intense this passage is and how easily misunderstandable it can be. Okay, and people have also used this passage to create more division. And it is because they have missed the heavy irony and sarcasm that the Apostle Paul is employing. So it's important to understand just kind of the the irony that's dripping from this passage. For example, uh, if you don't know Pastor Kim, you might actually take his irony and sarcasm seriously and you would actually just think that he's just making fun of you. But actually, he really is just making fun of you. (laughs) But we can't miss the irony in Paul's words here. And in fact, it is the key to understanding this entire passage. If you have been following along in 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was very purposeful in avoiding human philosophy, uh, fancy rhetoric, or human wisdom, even though he could have, because he feared that in appealing to those very things, it would put the spotlight on himself rather than on the power of God in the crucified Savior. And in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that he did not come to the Corinthians proclaiming any lofty speech or wisdom. But starting in verse 6, it's almost as if Paul has completely forgotten all that he has said, just, you know, five verses, six verses later. And so take a look at the the first half of verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now, a question is, why is Paul appealing to the very thing that he has tried so hard to avoid. And I think here's the reason. Here's the reason, and it's, I think it's really important. It's because Paul is redefining what true wisdom and what true maturity is. Paul is using irony to reclaim and to show them what true maturity really is. Now, going back to my original question, what does it mean to be a mature Christian? How would the Corinthians have answered this question? Influenced by the culture's understanding of wisdom and maturity, the Corinthians, for the Corinthians, to be a mature Christian meant that you had arrived at an advanced stage of spiritual insight and perfection, while those who are immature are those who have not arrived at all. And my question is, would we have defined spiritual maturity that much differently? I mean, sure, the mature maybe aren't those who have arrived, but the mature, we think, are at least those who know enough. Sure, the mature maybe aren't those who have an advanced stage of spiritual insight, but the mature, we think, are ready to move on from the cross and to talk about something else. Maybe the mature, maybe the mature aren't perfect, but the mature at least behave properly. The mature at least act stoically, and we can keep going and going and going. And it's not that maturity is not less than those things, but it's here that the Apostle Paul is challenging our core assumptions of what it means to be mature. You see, for the Corinthians, their standard of wisdom and maturity were primarily standards of knowledge, because knowledge is power. And while many of us think of maturity in cognitive terms, Paul redefines maturity in relational terms. What is true wisdom? What is true maturity? Well, take a, last, uh, take, a, take a look at the last half of verses 6 to 8. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Now, what is this hidden and secret wisdom that Paul is talking about here? We'll take a look, actually, back at chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. You see that the secret and hidden wisdom of God is none other than the foolish and scandalous message of the cross. And you see, for Paul, maturity is not, not by how much you know, but by how much your life has been defined by the cross. Because if your life was truly defined by this hidden wisdom of God, you would know that the standard of maturity isn't on the basis of what you know, but by how you love. One commentator writes that all Christians are mature in the sense that they have come to terms with the message of the cross, while all others, by by definition, have not. And listen to this. The message of Christ crucified is the only fundamental dividing line in the human race. Let me, let me rephrase that, or let me say that one more time. The message of Christ crucified is the only fundamental dividing line in the human race. What that means is that the dividing line between the human race, the dividing line between those who are truly mature and those who truly aren't, is the cross. That is the redefinition of maturity. Mature people are those who have embraced the message of the cross and live according to that message, and immature people are those who have not. And you know, I think this, uh, this, this redefinition really challenges my assumptions of maturity. Because I know for a fact that there are Christians at Lighthouse, even those in this high school group, who are not, at least by my definition, mature. But this passage challenges me to reconsider that if they are Christians, if they have aligned themselves and have placed their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, then they are mature. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no degrees of maturity, but that there is no such thing as two-tiered Christianity, where you have, you know, a group of holy Christians and a group of non-holy Christians. And maturity, therefore, means that there can be, there can, there can never be an us versus them Mentality. The dividing line is with the world, not with Christians. Which is why Paul says that we have a wisdom that is not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass. The cross of Jesus, the the, the wisdom of God, divides all of humanity into two separate categories. Those who belong in this present age and those who belong in the age to come. But let's think about it for a second. If, if the dividing line is with the world and not with Christians, doesn't that run the risk of creating an us versus them mentality between Christians and non-Christians? And that's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. And to answer this question, we have to remember who Paul is writing to. Who is Paul writing to here? Is he writing to atheists? Is he writing to non-Christians? Is he writing to his non-Christian friends? He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians in Corinth. What Paul's doing here is Paul is using this dividing line to show Christians, not non-Christians, 
that we are stepping outside of the line every time we appeal to the world's notion of maturity, wisdom, power, and values. Paul is insinuating that every time we nurse bitterness, rivalries with one another, when we look at our friends, church people, classmates, and others, and choose who to hang out with on the basis of how they look, or on the basis of what they know, or on the basis of what they have, we are in danger of betraying the maturity that we profess to have. Worse, we are no longer acting as citizens of heaven, but as citizens of a world that is passing away. Rather than using this dividing line as a means to judge others, Paul is using this dividing line as a means to judge the church. If we walk out our front doors thinking that we are better than non-Christians because we know true wisdom, or because we go to Lighthouse Community Church, or because we know what the Bible says, or because our dads are pastors or deacons, or because you meet with this person or that person, we have completely misunderstood Paul's point. Lonnie gets it. The real irony of maturity is that if you think that you're mature, you're really not. If you think that you're really mature, you're not. I'll save Paul's most scathing comments for the next message. But just to give you a preview, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he says, I cannot address you as spiritual people. He's not, it's not even a low-key roast. He's just roasting them. I, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants, like babies, in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. Why? Because you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. Why? Because there is jealousy and strife and division and factions among you. Because if you were really mature, you would never humble brag. You would never use your maturity to manipulate others. You would never use your maturity as a way to look down on other people. You would never use your maturity to exclude others. You would never use your maturity to even make fun of others. You would never use your maturity to complain about others. You would never use your maturity to humiliate or embarrass other people. Because mature people recognize the standard of maturity which is the cross. And it is at the foot of the cross where every single individual is leveled. And I just want to draw uh, draw an implication of this. Take a look at verses 9 to 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure if we really understand how, how, how radical Paul's words are here. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul is quoting from a combination of uh, two passages in Isaiah And the point that he's trying to draw here is that there is no way human beings can comprehend what God is like. Philosophers have tried and failed. Scientists have tried and failed. Sorry, Peter. Psychologists have tried and failed. And yet, Paul says, to us. To us. 
God has revealed these things through his spirit. If you are a Christian tonight, it is not because you made your way to God, but because God has made his way to you. Because left to ourselves, we would never want God. And I think that should humble us a little bit. If you have believed in the truth of the gospel of Jesus, it has nothing to do with how you were raised, your upbringing, or how long you have been going to church. It is entirely to do with the Spirit of God who has made the gospel beautiful and precious to you, who, knew, who now by faith in the Son of God dwells in you, Christian. What does this mean? Well, it means that through his spirit, God has chosen to reveal his thoughts to you. And in fact, he has chosen to reveal his very self to you in Jesus. This, this is a privilege that prophets and patriarchs had longed to see that we now have in our possession. And it has been re- revealed to you and to every single Christian who has placed their faith in Jesus. And so for those who are more inclined to look down on others, especially the Christians who are looking down on other Christians, guess what? Every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Therefore, every Christian is mature. And if it is something that is revealed, it means that we cannot boast in it. And we cannot boast over others for it. You can't boast in a gift that was yours or that was given to you. The fact that it was revealed to us means that we have no advantage over anyone because just like anyone else, we would have been just as lost. And the fact that Christians have the same spirit of God dwelling in them is the reason for our unity. And what this also means is that as I speak, I, 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 have, I have no power to change you. I, I really don't. And, and that is uh, particularly humbling for me because I just like, stayed up all night working on this message um, in such a way that you would not only understand it, but also be convinced of its truths and to apply the truths of tonight's passage to your own lives this week. And this passage reminds me that that is not up to me how you respond to the truth. It never could be. I know that there are, um, there are some of you who have grown up at Lighthouse for the longest time, and you are so familiar to the truths of the gospel. You know uh, two ways to live in and out. You, you know that you are a sinner, and because of our sin, because of your sin, uh, that you have preferred anything but God. You know that God, as loving as he is just, must utterly reject punish and ultimately deal with that which pollutes and destroys his creation. You also know that God decided to deal with your sin by coming as Jesus on the cross to die for your sins so that you would be forgiven and reconciled to him. You also know that God will one day make all things new. You, of all people here, you guys know that. And yet I know that at the same time, there are also some of you who reject this message. You've grown up listening to it and you reject it. So many, so many of you know this message of the crucified Savior, but you have not absorbed it into your life. And my heart 
grieves for you. I, pr- I pray for you guys every day. I can be as articulate or convincing or funny, philosophical even. I can pray for you, but that's not up to me. I don't have the power to change your heart. And that is humbling for me as a pastor because I am not God. And what's ironic is that the pastor is to speak the words of God. But I'm not God. I am not the Holy Spirit. And that also means that you are not the Holy Spirit. The fact that maturity, the the, the truth of the gospel, the wisdom from God must be revealed rather than found means that in our ministry to each other, as small group leaders even, as Christians ministering to non-Christians, what we need to remember is that it is only God who can change the heart, not you or me. Why? It is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There can only, there can only be one God, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. <clears throat> There can only be one Savior, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. And so a question that I want to ask us is to to really consider the the, the content, at least of this message. Why are we still divided amongst each other when we have a God who unites all things together? Therefore, it means that we need to be a people of the Spirit, not people of the flesh. People who rely on the Spirit people who are taught by the Spirit, people who bear the fruit of the Spirit, people who walk in the unity of the Spirit and so prove to be Jesus' disciples. Having the mind of Messiah means that the standards of maturity must be redefined. And so that concludes part one. Uh, Please stick around for part two next week. Uh, I think I did pretty, pretty good on time. I was at 30 minutes, so that is the shortest, I think, guys. So... I know, I know. Even as I was talking about, like, you know, it's not about me. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray.